Good morning, friends. How are you? Good. It's nice to see you all here this morning. Um, welcome to the season at Conduit where you either complain because you're too hot or you complain because you're too cold in the room. Um, so you can choose which one you want. If you do get too cold, just let us know and we can, take, uh, we can shut off the air conditioner that's right above you. We want to keep you comfortable in here um, as much as we, we can. It's not, our, it's not our ultimate goal. Some of you are too cold already and it's too early to complain. Sorry. Because uh, <laughs> I'm going to sweat through this shirt for sure this morning. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, we do want to keep it comfortable. Obviously, uh, it's not our number one goal. Our number one goal is to get you close to Jesus, right? Because we know that when we get you close to Jesus, that the Spirit of God will do the transforming work that God does in your heart, in your life, um, and bring about, bring about new life, right? Uh, where the old has been put to dead, or put, been put to death, and the new is being uh, resurrected with him. That's what we celebrate during the Easter season. That's kind of what Pastor Luke had already said about the um, interrelationship between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, right? We always want to sprint towards Easter Sunday. It's, the, it's, it's Easter, right? Of course, you, you want to get to Easter. It's the flowers. It's the, it's the food. It's the celebration. It's like the, it is uh, definitively the apex and the top of the Christian, the Christian faith. It is the reason why we celebrate. Paul says in his letter to the first Corinthians that if Jesus were not raised from the dead, then our hope is useless. Is useless. It's in vain. That, that, that nothing about our faith makes sense unless Jesus resurrected from the grave. Right? Um, but the Funny thing, I guess you would say, or the process thing, is that before we can get to the celebration of Easter, we have to go through the cross of Good Friday. And the cross is with, not without consequence for your life and for mine. When we, can, when we consider our sin, when, when the Holy Spirit of God um, speaks to us about our need for a Savior, the, that conversation starts at the foot of the cross. And so we're, uh, the Good Friday uh, service is, um, you know, we always, I always try to make, you know, Good Friday and Easter Sunday separate things. But, it, but in reality, right, um, Good Friday is like Easter part one. And then Easter Sunday is like the finale, right? It is the, it is the thing. Uh, so it's hard to celebrate one without the other. We've been in this series um, throughout the Gospels the last few weeks during the Lenten series called Easter People. And it's a little bit of a play on words because we believe and um, the Christians throughout generations have called themselves or considered themselves to be Easter people. Meaning not just a holiday that we celebrate on one Sunday a month, but people who um, have who have been adopted by or are living into the identity of all that Easter signifies and symbolizes that we are a people who have been reborn. We are a people who have been resurrected by our faith in Jesus Christ. We are a people whose perspectives and whose lives, the lens through which we witness and view the world and our relationships and our circumstances and our experiences have been completely changed and rewired by the reality that in, uh, in the Spirit of God, God raised Jesus back from the dead with power and that by our faith in Jesus, we too will experience the same resurrection. 
And so we walk around with the mantle of being Easter people, whether that's in December or whether that's on April 9th. We are Easter people. But there are also people in the gospel stories who had very significant roles, either because of who they were or what their life was about, or because they were actually had a pivotal role in the kind of Easter story that we can learn things from. And sometimes we learn from negative examples, and sometimes we learn from positive examples. And we've been doing a little bit of both. Today, um, I have a message that essentially has one point to it, all right? Um, and so maybe we'll be lucky and I'll, we'll get out of here a little bit early this morning. I don't know, but <laughs> probably not, right? <sighs> Today we're going to talk about a guy named Pontius Pilate. Now the story of Pilate um, is the story essentially of someone who knew, he knew right from wrong, but walked in so much fear of his circumstances that he lost his sense of conviction. Pilate knew what was right. Pilate knew what was wrong. And we're going to see that in the Gospels. But out of so, he had so much fear built up in who he was and so much fear in the way that he was responding to the world and circumstances around him that he was not able to make a decision that was based on his convictions. He could only respond in fear. And we're going to look at um, someone who is the antitype to uh, Pilate as well. Uh, many uh, of us here, uh, myself included, right? This is, I mean, I think you could say that this is a little bit sometimes, that this is a part of my testimony and my story, right? Where there have been times in my life where I've I've acted or responded or led or lived or whatever the case may be out of a sense of fear rather than out of a sense of conviction or what I knew was right or wrong. And, and then you suffer the consequences of those decisions, right? You suffer, suffer the consequences of those types of relationships. And so many of us here, uh, myself included, may, you may find some points of relation with Pilate. Uh, maybe you can even, at, even this early, you can begin to recognize situations in your life where maybe you've had a sense of what you should do or you needed to do, but you were too afraid to do it. And maybe you were afraid to do it because there was a lot of relationship dynamics that were mixed up in that and you didn't know how it was going to affect a relationship that you had. Or you knew the right thing over here, but you didn't want it to jeopardize uh, maybe something at work, maybe a relationship with a coworker, or your upward momentum or your, your reputation or whatever the case may be. Sometimes those decisions that we make out of fear, rather out of conviction, can be wrapped up in our own family dynamics. And that's even, um, that's even more complicated. Sometimes we know what God desires us to do and how to act or proceed, but we we kind of make this internal wager that the personal costs, they're going to be too high for us. The personal costs for doing what we know we should do are going to be a little bit too high. And so what do we do? We acquiesce and pretend maybe that we didn't hear the Lord say to us that thing at all. Or pretend that that deeply held conviction that we had, maybe, maybe I'm just going to pretend that it's not as deeply held as I actually know it is because it's easier for me to not do the thing that I know is right, right? 
than to do the thing that I know is right and to suffer the consequences for it. If you remember anything from last week, um, when it comes to hearing the Lord say something to you and determining whether or not you're going to respond. Uh, last week we talked about it in the context of Judas Iscariot, right? Who is the ultimate anti-example of Easter people. Um, I have a little bit more compassionate view of Pilate, I think. Uh, maybe because I relate with him a little bit more. Um, but um, the, the message remains the same. That in moments of determining between doing the thing that you have an inner personal conviction for or that you hear the Spirit of God speaking clearly into your life, right? And you're in this position where you're like, I'm not sure that I should do this or not. I'm afraid of the consequences if I do it. I'm afraid of what it will mean. The message from last week that I hope that you remember and you always hold closely to you, it's a message from God's Word. It's from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12-15. through 15. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful or unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. That is the message from the writer of Hebrews who's quoting actually a passage from the book of Psalms. But he says, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. Do not pretend you didn't hear. Do not respond out of fear. The Lord is speaking something intimately, directly, and sometimes through the bullhorn of your own spirit or the bullhorn of your own experiences. If you hear the Lord's voice speaking into your life, do not harden your heart. Do not turn away. Do not do the la 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 la. I can't hear you, right? Because because you will suffer the consequences of a hardened heart, which is a progressive insensitivity to the things of the Lord and the character of Jesus Christ being grown in you will be effectually stunted. Right? We cut it off at the knees when we hear the Lord, but say no to Him. When we hear the Lord, but we respond out of fear rather than conviction. So, as a reminder, we talked about this last week in regards to Pontius pa or in, in, in regards to Judas, but we're talking about it this week as well in, in, um, in regards to Pilate, is that not all people in Scripture, not all stories from Scripture are meant to draw positive examples or inspiring messages. Like we sometimes we get into a maybe a, a pattern or a habit of thinking but like, well, I mean, everyone whose story is depicted or displayed in Scripture um, is like the pinnacle of examples for us to live by. Thinking like, oh, the, the life of Jesus. And I would say, yes, pinnacle example of life to live by. But then we say, well, what about Paul? Well, no. 
right? Not unless you want to like have the example of murdering Christians, right? When we come to this realization, when we come to this reality of like, okay, um, learning from or or gathering like positive examples from people's lives throughout Scripture, there is one person and one person alone in the pages of Scripture that that provides for us the pinnacle example of how to live in accordance with God's will, and that's Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone, right? Every other, every other person, every other story, every other situation and circumstance you see is one that is, is a human being marred by the power and the depth of their own sinfulness and brokenness and who, just like you and I, the only thing that is good in them is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Right? So what we, what we learn from a positive standpoint from these people is that what is good in them is Jesus. What is good in me is Jesus. What is good in you is Jesus. Everything else, forget about it. Um, so sometimes what we see realistically in the pages of Scripture are the illustrated warnings of those who did not heed the Word of God. They're the stories of those, they're the pictures of those who knew what was right, did something else. The Lord was speaking. They chose a different path. It's an illustrated story, right? In Pilate's case, the Word of God came to Pilate in the most significant way that it possibly could in the person of Jesus Christ. There was no clearer message from God that possibly could have ever been in existence than Jesus Christ standing before Pilate speaking the words of truth to him and into him. Right? No clearer message at all. And in an ultimate act of fear, Pilate, Pilate acted in his own self-interest and his own self-preservation even though he knew what was right and what was wrong. So, I want to tell the story here a little bit, okay? Um, because, well, you know, you might not, you know, maybe you're new in your relationship with Jesus Christ or this is the first time that you've walked through one of these big scary building places with all these people that say all these things and believe all these things that you have no idea about but you're here because you don't really know why you're here but you just decided to show up this morning. And I'm going to say, like, I know exactly why you're here. We've been praying for you. The Spirit of God has been working on your heart and in your life, right? Circumstances have aligned where you thought maybe you were getting dragged here, right? Like, you might have been getting dragged here, but God planned that you were going to get dragged here this morning. And what I'm praying this morning is that you would open your ears and soften your spirit just long enough to let the Spirit of God speak into your heart and life because He does have something to say to you this morning. But there, you might not be familiar with this story, right? and uh, we can't go through all the details. But I'm going to try and uh, try and give you um, the maybe the Reader's Digest condensed version of what was happening and why Pilate was a why Pilate was a figure in this story. Last week we talked about Judas Iscariot, and even if you're not familiar with the Bible stories, the biblical stories, you probably have an idea of who Judas Iscariot is because it's kind of like a pop cultural reference, even right. Like, that guy's such a Judas. 
He's a betrayer. You can't trust him. Don't turn your back on him because he'll stab you in it as soon as, you, as, soon as he can, right? Jesus was arrested by a mob of religious leaders, by a mob of um, religious leaders who were tipped off as to Jesus' location by one of his disciples named Judas. Judas betrayed him for a very small um, sum of money. After Jesus was arrested, the high priest of um, of the Jewish people the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, for lack of a better term, the religious leaders of that day, brought Jesus up on um, charges in accordance with Jewish law. Because Jesus had made a habit in his ministry out of telling people, um, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Or he would come over here and he would proclaim that Uh, Hey, just so you all know, um, I and the Father in heaven, we we are one. Whatever the Father says, I say. Whatever I say, the Father says. Whatever the Father does, I do. Right? We are one. You cannot separate us from one another. Probably most significant is that Jesus proclaimed himself to be Lord. Now for us, the term Lord is purely a religious phrase, right? And we, we almost use it as kind of like a last name, right? But, but Lord was not just a religious phrase. It had, it had deep political ramifications tied up in the use of it, right? Similar to how someone would say they are Lord of a land or they are Lord of a home or they are Lord of a manor or whatever the phraseology would be. Jesus proclaiming that he was Lord was a deeply spiritual statement, but it was also a deeply political statement. Because if Jesus is Lord, if if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the anointed one of God, then guess who wasn't? The Emperor Caesar of the Roman Empire, who ruled by an iron military fist with extreme prejudice against any competition to his throne. And so the proclamation of Jesus to be Lord, to be King of the Jews, was a direct political affront on the the leader of the most powerful empire and emperor in all of existence, the Roman Empire, Caesar. Now for all of these crimes, proclaiming to be Lord, proclaiming that he and the Father were one, uh, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, teaching with authority um, in the temple over and against the, um, the uh, religious leaders of the day. Um, uh, this, for unbelieving or unfollowing Jews, would have been considered like the ultimate blasphemy against the one true God. Jesus, you can't say that you're the Messiah. You can't say that you're one with God. You can't say that you have the power to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And like, listen, dude, you're a guy from Nazareth. We know that you're not God because God is not a guy from Nazareth. That's not who God is. And so, and so they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Now, in the Jewish law and in the Jewish culture, blasphemy 
was a sin that was punishable, the ultimate punish, punishment. It was punishable by death. Blasphemy was speaking out against God, speaking out of essentially out of turn towards the holiness of God. And so in Jewish culture and in Jewish law, that was a crime punishable by death. There was just one problem. The Jews were not a free people. They, they were occupied by the Roman um, Empire, ruled ultimately by Caesar. They could not operate or live autonomously and independently in every situation and circumstance. The Roman um, Empire was large and expansive. And so um, Roman, uh, the, the Roman style of government was to set uh, what they were called proconsuls, or essentially governors, were set to lead different areas or different like um, regions of the Roman Empire. These leaders or these governors were extensions of the emperor's rule. And for a large portion of the Roman occupation, they were charged with ensuring that the native people of whoever that they were ruling over did not sufficiently organize so as to create an uprising or rebellion against the empire itself. Now, can you guess who the governor of the region of Jerusalem was that worked for the Roman Empire Caesar was? What was his name? His name was Pontius Pilate, right? Pilate was the guy that was the extension of the Roman Empire in the area of Judea and in and around Jerusalem. Now, not long before we catch up with Mary and Joseph in the first part of the Gospel, uh, the Roman Empire had finished, just finished stamping out a fairly significant rebellion um, and insurrection of the Jewish people um, called the Maccabean Revolt. Where this group called the Maccabees, they, they, they began to be like, okay, let's organize Let's, let's rebel. Let's kick the Romans out of here. Let's set up the true Jewish king, the true Jewish Messiah. Let's make room for God to come in strength and power here. And it was no, it was no small rebellion. In fact, it was, it was really significant. And even into the end of Jesus' life, the kind of the air in Judea and in Jerusalem was kind of electric with this anxiety and this tension of all these little rebellions popping up and people were always, the Romans were kind of always like looking over their shoulder at the next moment that something was going to pop off and they were going to have to come in strong. And so they were really, really quick to squash something as soon as it would start or even before it would start in order to maintain control and order in the area. Now, while the Jews were permitted to practice their faith and to live their lives under Roman rule in general, one thing that they were not allowed to do was to hand down a sentence of capital punishment. They were not allowed to execute someone even if they even if they um, were accused of blasphemy, a capital punishment type of sin. This could only happen by going through the Roman style 
of justice, which by most accounts at least aimed to be logical and fair in process, but obviously firm and brutal in the way that it was carried out. This is where we see things like Jesus being flogged or whipped, right? Jesus being hung on a cross. It wasn't the only way that, um, that the Romans killed people, but it was the most brutal and the most shameful way to die. And so we see when the religious leaders arrest Jesus and they charge him with blasphemy, which is a crime that is punishable by death, they have to bring him before Pilate in order to have Pilate execute their desired sentence, which is that Jesus would be executed because they didn't have the authority to do so. Ultimately, what they wanted is they wanted Pilate to do their dirty work. They wanted to do the thing that they were unable to do or didn't have the stomach to do themselves. We see in the Gospel account uh, where this happens. John chapter 18. The story of Pilate is in all four Gospels. Uh, we're going to be choosing to focus a little bit on John, John's account of it today. But if we see in John chapter 18, starting at verse 28 and going through verse 32, we see how this is kind of playing itself out. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest at that time to the palace of the Roman governor, Pilate. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They, they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. And so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own laws. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicated the, the kind of death that he was going to die and would be fulfilled. So, so the Jews knew they couldn't do it. They had to bring him to Pilate um, in order to get this thing done. Well, how does Pilate respond to the request of the Jews? How does Pilate approach the situation of the Jews bringing Jesus to him, asking them, um, asking him to carry out the sentence? Well, um, there's maybe kind of a few ways to look at this. Um, most of us here know the end of the story, right? Pilate does does sign off on ultimately the killing of Jesus. But it's also not that simple. All of the Gospel accounts record the hesitancy of Pilate to give in to the demands of the Jewish leaders. It's not, it's not uh, as though Pilate appears to be this like bloodthirsty, ruthless, no matter what the Jews say, he's just going to go along with it type of leader. It actually shows that Pilate had some hesitancy in what he thought what he should do versus what he actually did do. In fact, uh, more than once, Pilate goes out of his way to declare that he finds no basis for the charges against this man. 
For instance, we're in John chapter 18, right? So John chapter 18, verse 38. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for charges against this man. You go down a little bit further into John chapter 19. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for charges against him. Verse 4. As it goes on, all the way into verse 6. As for me, Pilate says, I find no basis for charges against him. Now you can read the other gospel accounts as well. Um, Luke chapter 23 um, uh, is, a, is a big one where time and time and time again, the gospel writer records the words of Pilate, I find no basis for charges against him. I find no basis of charges against him. I find no basis. I find no basis. Pilate even appealed to the crowd clamoring for Jesus' execution by offering to release him as a measure of goodwill during their Passover celebration. Passover being the most important holiday for the Jewish people, Pilate said, hey look, I know once during Passover I let go one political prisoner for you guys just as a measure of goodwill. How about this? Since it's Passover, I'll let this Jesus guy go since I find no basis for the charges against him anyway. And what did the crowd do? What's the crowd's response in this moment? In John 18, verses 38 and 39, um, Pilate says, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Uh, do you want me to release the, the king of the Jews to you? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Other Gospels say that he had been convicted of murder or was being charged with murder as a part of a political uprising and rebellion. So the very thing that um, Pilate and the Roman government wanted to avoid, the Jews wanted to continue to promote. And they were like, no, don't give us Jesus back. Give us the murderous rebellion back, rebel back. That's who we want. That's who we want us to let, us go, to let go. Time and time again, the Gospel accounts all record that Pilate tried to convince the crowd that Jesus was innocent, that there was no basis for charging him, and that he didn't want anything to do with the situation at all. But at the same time, all the Gospel accounts record that Pilate ultimately acquiesced to the crowd's demands, released the murderer Barabbas instead, and handed Jesus over to be flogged, beaten, and ultimately executed. We see a few instances here where it was where that was um, so. Mark chapter fifteen, verse fifteen, says that wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Luke twenty three. 18 through 20, with one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to the crowd again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Later in Luke 23, verse 24, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. 
So Pilate decided to grant their demand. In John chapter 19, verse 12, the Gospel that we're in. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept on shouting. Listen, it's really clear here that Pilate had a sense of what he needed to do, what he wanted to do, what the right thing was to do, but that he fell victim to, not victim to, but he allowed the the um, incessant shouts and screams of the crowd to drown out his own personal conviction and what he knew what was right. It was Pilate's apathy and his moral laziness that made it easier for him to bow to the will of the crowd even though he knew the religious leader's motives were not good. He knew that their motives were not good. He he knew that it was not true, but it was his moral laziness, his apathy that led him to acquiescing to them. And he didn't want anything to do with it. Matthew chapter 27, we see this famous verse. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting... He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is now your responsibility. And we use this, we use this phrase today, don't we? I'm washing my hands of that situation. I'm washing my hands of that relationship. I'm washing my hands of that circumstance. It's essentially saying, I was like, I don't want any connection with the consequences or the circumstances about what's happening here. I don't agree with it. I don't want it or whatever. It doesn't always actually release us from responsibility though, does it? Sometimes sometimes it just maybe makes us feel a little bit better about the decision that we feel that we must make, but it, it doesn't always change the actual consequences of the, as consequences of the decision. It maybe helps us sleep at night. Now, seen kind of in this light, we might say, we might, like, man, I kind of feel bad for this pilot guy. He knew what was right, wanted to do one thing, but the crowd and 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 the crowd. And I guess, listen, I'll be, I won't be honest for you, I'll be honest with me, for me, okay? I don't know if, how you feel about this. But if I'm honest with how I feel about it, if, if you're a person that maybe is prone to or wants to develop compassion or empathy in your own self for other people, you might, you might find yourself in some way relating to the extraordinary pressure that he was experiencing in that moment. I, I can empathize with that. I can, I can see that. Extraordinary pressure that Pilate was under. But, we, but what we can also say very fairly, is that Pilate operated in a spirit and attitude of fear that paralyzed him from making the right decision even when he knew it was the right one. That he allowed allowed fear to drive his action and his decisions 
rather than the conviction of what he knew was right and wrong. The Gospel of Matthew records that Pilate was not just a victim of his circumstances or tricked by the Jewish leaders into believing that Jesus was actually bad when, when he wasn't. Matthew says that Pilate knew that the reasons were not good and that they were doing it out of envy and disdain. He says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18, for he, being Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate wasn't a victim of being, um, being tricked by the Jews. He wasn't a victim of circumstance, right? Pilate knew, he knew up here, he knew in here that the, that the motivations of the crowd that were pushing him to execute Jesus were motivations that were birthed out of envy and anger and disdain. And so the question there remains, the ultimate question in Pilate's life is why would Pilate do this if he knew that it was wrong? I suppose that you and I could ask ourselves a similar question. We could ask ourselves similar questions about times where we have acted or done something out of fear or out of anger or out of pain or out of um, anxiety or out of whatever, the, whatever it is. That we, we, we do something out of a sense of brokenness and darkness and sinfulness even though we know right what is actually right. And, and it becomes very easy for us. Listen, we are the best salesmen for our own poor decisions. We are excellent, excellent, excellent salesmen for our poor decisions because none of us actually makes poor decisions believing that it's a poor decision. Do we? We always make a poor decision that is based on us selling the decision to ourselves. I deserve this. I should be able to, it's just once. I can say that because I'm really angry and I'm passionate. Or they need to hear this thing, right? Even though we know internally, like, eh, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. You know, Christian accountability. Uh, Got to hold them accountable, right? And, and so we, 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 make, we make really good salesmen. To, to sell ourselves on the poor decisions that we make all the time. And we have a million and one rationalizations as to why we should do that thing or shouldn't do that thing. I don't know what the reason, I don't know what the answer is in your life, but I think that for Pilate, Pilate obviously chose what was expedient and personally beneficial rather than what was right. He chose what would get the situation done with and out of his face more quickly and what would personally benefit him more. Pilate acted out of a place of fear rather than out of a place of conviction. When he said uh, a final time in John uh, 19 that he found no basis to charge Jesus, look at the way that the Jews responded. In, verse 19, in chapter John 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. He's trying to set him free. What do the Jews do instead? Um, 
if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. This is very savvy of the Jewish leaders. If you let the man go, you are no friend of Caesar was a veiled way of threatening that meant to imply that, hey, look, Pilate, if you let Jesus go, uh, Caesar is going to find out. The emperor is going to find out that you let go someone who claimed to be the king without punishing them. You're going to be found out. Pilate was in a very precarious position. If he condemned Jesus, he would be making a mockery of classic Roman judicial prudence and what he knew was actually right and wrong. If he let Jesus go, his political future and perhaps his very life was as good as over. He was balancing these two realities, or at least needed to balance these two realities. And when we as people, as Pilate does here, when we act out of a spirit and posture of fear, we can only act in reactivity to the world around us. It becomes virtually impossible, right, to act proactively or to be proactive according to our core values and what we know is right and wrong if everything that we're doing is a response to the fear that we have in our lives. When we act out of a sense of who we know we are, what we have been called to do, what we know God desires for us, we are much less likely to be pushed in a direction that compromises our most deeply held beliefs and convictions. We may find ourselves acting in a way that we know internally does not square with our values in those situations. We should ask ourselves, okay, I, I know I should do this. I know that's the right decision. I know that's the right thing to say or not to say. I know that's the right decision to take or not to take. But I don't want to do it, even though I know it's right. You find yourself in one of those positions, right? Important question to ask yourself. What am I afraid of? If I know it's right, if I know that's the right direction, if I know those are the right words, if I know that's the right attitude, but I don't want to do it, and in fact, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to do it, the question that we need to ask ourselves internally, allow the Holy Spirit of God to press deep down into our soul, is what are you afraid of? What, what, what are you so afraid of that the thing that you know is right you are, you are willfully saying, I'm not going to do. Well, maybe you're afraid that you know, justice is not going to be done on your behalf. That person's going to get off scot-free with whatever they've done wrong to you or whatever they're saying or whatever's going on in their life. And, and you have a duty to, to tell them exactly how you feel. Well, no, not all the time you don't. Or you know that you're being encouraged to do shady things at work. 
and you know you shouldn't, and you know it's wrong, and you know there's nothing right about it. You can feel it at the center of your being. You can feel it in your gut. You know, you know what your, your gut actually is? It's, your Holy Sp- it's the Holy Spirit inside you being like, ah, warning, warning, warning. It's not good. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. Right? Don't do that. But you're choosing to do something different and say, what are you afraid of? What are you trying to avoid? And what I've found in my own life is that naming that fear, well, I'm afraid that if I do that, I'm afraid that if I do what's right or wrong here, that, um, that person, well, like here, I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? When you, name, when you name a fear, right? When you name your fear, what am I afraid of? It allows us the opportunity to recognize, pick up, and hold that fear, carry it to God in prayer, surrender it to Him, and ask Him to seed faith on top of the fear so that what grows out of that place is, is, is faith in Him, not fear of, what you're, of what's going to happen. Now, what, what could be possibly be an example of this? Um, and since I'm a, I'm an expert on my own life, but not yours, I'll tell you an example from mine. Okay. So you, so you know that this is a way, remember how I said, I, there's, there's some things that I relate with, with Pilate acting out of fear rather than out of conviction all the time. So as a pastor, I'm often, oftentimes, um, moved by the Holy Spirit, uh, to speak a word, a speak, to speak a word of what you call admonition into someone's life. Now, uh, the word admonish or admonition means to speak a word of correction or reproof or warning to someone. And they may be like displaying behaviors or speaking words or making decisions or, 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 or operating in a relationship that is hurtful to themselves and hurtful to others around them. Now, they may have suffered some consequences for this thing in their life. Maybe minimal consequences. Those consequences may be primarily internal, right, to them. Or those consequences might begin to spill over externally in uh, their lives. And those consequences are usually, um, usually they're, they're warning signs to let you know that what you're doing what you're saying, the path that you're walking, the things that you're involving yourself with are, are not, is not an advisable path, but that usually it's not so significant so as to actually alter their behavior. They're feeling things in here that are consequences of the decisions that they're making, but it hasn't risen to the level here or out here enough yet that it's actually altering their behavior. It's just sitting here. They may even continue on the same path, just kind of crossing their fingers that nothing ever comes of their decisions. That nothing ever comes of the things that they're doing that they know is wrong, but they're choosing a different way. Let me tell you, as a word of general admonishment here, um, Something always comes from your decisions. Always. 
always, always, always. You will not outrun your sin. You will not. Hear me when I say, you cannot sprint fast enough. You cannot cover it up fast enough. You cannot bury it under a mound of happy things and experiences, right? You cannot smile it away. It will catch up to you. It will, right? Because God's holiness will not be mocked in your life. In relationship, um, so as a pastor, sometimes I see these things. Um, probably more than you would, you would expect or anticipate that I do. I see these things. I see these relationships. I see these words. I see these attitudes. I see these decisions. I see these things. And I'm feeling inside me like warning, 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 like Pastor Cameron, you, you better say something, dude. You better say something. You better say something. You better say something. This is why I have called you. This is who I have, like, this is who you are. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I hear the Holy, I, I, I hear the Holy Spirit say, warn them, give them my word, share my word with them, be gentle with them, but be firm, pray for them and encourage them, walk with them. Now, what happens if I am firmly planted in the confident soil of God's calling on my life as a pastor in that moment? Well, I, I say something. But what happens when fear takes over? I know the right thing to do, but I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? Well, this, this might come to surprise you, right? But I... I, can't, I actually kind of prefer that you like me. <laughs> it's easier that way, right? It's easier if we like each other. It's, e it's easier if we, we're like, hey, high five. Good to see you. Give me a hug. Love you, brother. Love you, sister. How is this? How it's easier if we like each other. All right? Because it's been kind of my experience a little bit that when you do speak words of admonishment into people's lives, right? If there's a hardness of heart that's been developed there, right? You know what the you know what the response is? Gone. See ya. I don't. Who does he think he is? Talking to me like that, right? And so fear takes over. I want them to like me. I don't want them to be mad. I don't want them to do X, Y, or Z. If I say that to them, then. And I, what's going to happen in the process? What happens? What happens in the process? What happened in Pilate's process? In the process of it, Pilate doesn't escape the consequences of what actually happens to Jesus. He actually becomes complicit, right, with the nefarious motives of the Jewish people. He, he no longer can actually wash his hands from what they're doing. This is a feel-good thing, Pilate. By you acting out of fear, not out of conviction, you become complicit in the process of their refusal to see that the Lord is standing right before them. When God 
could have used me, could have used you, could have used him as an instrument to their repentance and their sanctification. Now we actually partner with them in their disobedience, in their envy, in their disdain. Someone once spoke a word over my life. It was, man, a long time ago. I want to say maybe 15 years ago or so. I was at a conference that was for um, uh, a revival conference for pastors out in Illinois. And someone once told me, I don't have any idea. Well, I do have an idea why he told me this. Because I don't know this guy from Adam. I couldn't tell you who he was today, to be honest with you. But he looks straight at me in a small room of about 30 pastors. And he says this, I don't know your name, but what you need to hear is where there is fear of man, there can be no fear of God. Where there is fear of man, there can be no fear of God. You can't have both, son. So admonish, exhort with gentleness and grace, but in firmness and confidence and love. Walk with them towards repentance. Get them closer to Jesus. Let Jesus do the work of transformation. Now, Pilate is the ultimate negative example of this. Of someone who was so afraid that he was unable to act upon conviction. I'm afraid of what might happen for my political life. I'm afraid of what it might happen. Right? Well, like, I, what's gonna, I, I can't, I'm done with this. Do what you want. I don't want any part of it. A pilot is the negative example, but a guy named Stephen in the book of Acts is the positive example. Now we can't, man, we could, I, we could preach and preach and preach and preach and preach about this guy named Stephen, but suffice it to say, in Acts chapter 6, we see his story. Now what happens with Stephen? Stephen is a man, he's one of the men who the early church leaders, right, the um, 11 original disciples plus the one that was added after Judas um, was gone got together and said, okay, let's, let's, um, let's appoint certain men to be in charge of this type of ministry over here, the, the, making sure that um, the widows are fed well so that we can, um, we can focus on prayer and um, teaching of the word, proclamation of the word. Stephen was one of these guys, Right? And Stephen was one of these guys who was like, had, at least it appears, no sense of fear in regards to his personal conviction that Jesus Christ was Lord of all. And it didn't matter who he met, and it didn't matter what the situation was, he was going to take the opportunity to tell you exactly that. In Acts chapter 6, we see part of his story here. Now you've got to imagine that the same leaders who crucified Jesus uh, were not extraordinarily happy that his followers did not just fall in line. And that's not Stephen's story, that he went out and he was like, listen, I'm going to tell everyone who tells me or everyone who has time to listen, and even those Jewish leaders, like, come on, let me, i got a story to tell you guys. In Acts chapter eight or six, verse eight, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. 
Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. What are they doing? They're setting him up for the same, uh, for the same punishment as Jesus did. They stirred up the people, the teachers of the law, the elders. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And what did they see? Not the face of fear, who was about to kowtow to the pressure of them, but they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like the face of conviction that is ready. Now, all of chapter 7, essentially, or a big part of chapter 7, is Stephen just like getting his opportunity to not display the fear of losing his life in front of the religious leaders, but he takes the opportunity with conviction and confidence and full of the Holy Spirit of God to proclaim the gospel from the beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's like, hey, you guys got a minute? Because I'm going to tell you the whole story so that you can see that the same Jesus that you killed on the cross was the same Jesus that was there at creation. And I, I want to stand here and read this whole sermon because it's like, Stephen just like goes after it, man. He goes after it. He gets all the way down in chapter 7, verse 39. After he essentially preached the whole gospel from Genesis to Jesus' resurrection. And he says this. Does it sound familiar? Uh, but our fathers, our Jewish fathers, our religious fathers, our leaders, uh, refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. He was talking about Moses there. He later goes on to connect the same hardness of heart and spirit in the rejection of Jesus. And then finally, at the end of his sermon, in the ultimate act of, I guess you would call it pastoral admonishment, he says this in verse 51, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. If I'm ever mad at you and I say that, you better believe something's about coming, right? <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever say that, but maybe I'll add that to my list. <laughs> You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it yourself. And what happens when you speak a word of, of admonishment and faith to hearts that are hard, they attack. Rage. 
anger. When you speak the word of truth, not your own truth, but when you speak the word of Holy Spirit, gospel-centric, Jesus-glorifying, in His word truth, and it hits the crust of the hardness of someone's heart, what is the response? The response is like anger, rage, fury. And that's exactly what happens. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. We will not listen to the conviction of a man full of the Holy Spirit speaking the gospel to us. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And Saul was there giving his approval to his death. It's an interesting like, footnote to that. The man who would later become, um, for lack of a better term, the greatest evangelist post-Jesus in all of human history, the Apostle Paul was there giving approval to the death of this man, speaking confidently and faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have to believe that Paul, when he got to heaven, ran up to Stephen and said, you are the man. Listen, it is so incredibly easy for us to act out of a spirit of fear, rather out of a spirit and posture of conviction when we know what is right and what is wrong. Okay? <clears throat> when you hear the word of the Lord, When you know what is right, when you know what is wrong, do not harden your heart. Do not let the conviction of the Holy Spirit, do not let the truth of God's Word hit a hard heart. It's one way to determine whether or not your heart is getting hard is that when someone does speak the truth of God's Word, into your life or over your life in a way that's gentle and full of grace and you only respond with a you have no idea what you're talking you're a jerk i don't want to hear this you break relationship you run as fast as you can you avoid them at all cost you talk poorly about them that should say something about whether or not you're in a heart posture to receive the work and the 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 the, the words of the holy spirit of god in your life Today, if you hear his word, do not harden your heart. Let me pray for us. Let's, let's pray. Let's have the worship team come back up and we'll spend some time in prayer here for a minute.
Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would move among your people this morning, that you would move among your people in a significant way, so that, Lord, if we have building hardness over our heart, that you would break, that you would break through that crust, Lord, and that you would speak, that you would speak into us your truth. That you would speak into us your word. That you would speak into us a heart and spirit of repentance that desires to leave behind a life of sin and walk in a life of righteousness. Lord, we trust you. We trust, Lord, that as we, as we draw close to you in Jesus Christ, that it is the proximity of us being, um, like that, that, uh, that allowing Jesus to transform who we are, Lord, is critical to that change. Lord, may we not take upon may we not take that task um, with little consequence, but that we would allow Jesus to transform who we are. That we would not harden our hearts. That we would hear your voice and respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, Amen.